0: I started to learn that the more pleasure I took and had in the preparing of the food the more the hunger that wasn't actual hunger it was a kind of mental hunger was being fed because it was a very meditative thing cooking it's a very satisfying pastime and particularly the way we tend to eat on the run eat you know by ourselves eat out of the fridge none of that gives you the pleasure that is inherent in preparing food and then sitting down and sharing it with other people.
1: Welcome to the Hurt to Healing podcast with me, Pandora Morris. I've been fighting an uphill battle with my mental health for many years, and it's only now that I've started to see some glimmers of light. As part of my own recovery, I've made it my mission to support as many of you as possible on your own healing journey by sharing conversations that are more honest and more raw than ever before. I'll be speaking to some wonderful people from all walks of life who will open up about their own invisible struggles in the hope that it will provide a bit of solace and comfort for some of you. The hurt to healing podcast is proud to partner with shout the UK's first free confidential 24 seven tech support service. So if you're struggling to cope and need mental health support, Please text SHOUT, S-H-O-U-T, to 85258. Today, I am thrilled to be joined by a huge role model of mine, Thomasina Myers. Tommy is a cook who many might know for winning MasterChef, a writer, restaurateur, and the co-founder of the successful Mexican street food restaurant, Oaxaca. Tommy has openly spoken about her own struggles with her mental health, particularly during her 20s. Her family has a history of both depression and alcoholism, and her grandmother very sadly died from suicide when Thomasina was just 21. Tommy also had a difficult relationship with food growing up, and she admits that her childhood played a pivotal role in her getting caught up in the diet and binge cycle. However, It was ironically when she finally discovered food as a career that her life changed and it ultimately became her medicine. A couple of years ago on Facebook, he wrote, I used to feel like I was damaged goods when I was growing up and that everyone else was normal and that I, we, were just a family that was somehow broken. Why did you say that and why did you feel that way when you were younger? I love that. Right right in there. Right in there. Right in there. Straight away.
0: Straight in there. No dilly-dallying. I think growing up, you're very vulnerable. You want to be like all your peers. You want to be part of the herd. That's a kind of general feeling. And and there's a lot of worry around growing up, wondering if you're normal, wanting to be normal. I mean, not everyone's like that, but I think that's the, the vast majority of people are like that. I had quite a tricky upbringing. My mother had had a very tricky upbringing with an alcoholic mother and quite a bullying father. Her brother basically left home, couldn't deal with it. And so she was at home dealing with, you know, a mother with severe depression, these really bad alcoholic episodes and seven suicide attempts before she finally succeeded when I was in my early 20s. So I think, you know, my mother brought a lot of angst already to the table and it's really interesting being a mother myself now I think no one talks about parenthood and how what you do when you're parenting is bring your own mental health issues to your parenting you know whatever angst and insecurities you've got that's what you bring to your parenting in fact I was talking to uh, Philippa Perry who's written a great book on parenting I remember her saying you know if you're worrying about your children's behavior the first thing you should do is look at your own and it's really true, you know, the way you see, well, alcoholism, you know, you, you're you either susceptible or not, but these not just characteristics, because I think addiction is quite hereditary, what I feel it is, I actually don't know that for sure, that's me just kind of talking, but definitely you inherit pattern of behavior and, and you see that you see domestic abuse carrying on through generations so i'm really interested in how these patterns are carried down through generations and almost a learned you get a learned history of your family and mental illness so either through closed doors or i think children very quickly assume the identity of the mental health environment that they're within which can be really dangerous in terms of inheriting it. But but I'm also fascinated by how therapy and curing mental health can stop bad inheritance. And I don't think we talk about that enough. And in fact, I read a brilliant article with Helena Bonham Carter, who who I've met a few times and she's brilliant. I'm a massive fan of hers. She's just become the first female president of the London Library, which is amazing. And in the first paragraph of this interview of her, she said it should be a prerequisite of all politicians to go through therapy before they go into their jobs because these are people who inherit the kind of controls of the country and yet they bring to it, they've never had therapy, they bring to it all the insecurities and mental health issues that they've grown up with. It is it was a really interesting point. And I think we really, really underestimate the power of getting, you know, mental health care. Like we get physical health care, you know, everyone has physical health issues. Everyone has mental health issues. Just depends how severe they are and how on the spectrum you are. But, you know, everyone deals with anxiety in a different way. And in a a way, that's what I think mental health is. It's a manifestation of how you're dealing with your anxieties. I find it really fascinating. And, And this ability to cure and be cured, but the lack of, really the lack of facility to do that in definitely in this country and how little therapy that seems to be around especially if you've got um you know very limited budgets
1: so i just you just spoke about you sort of referred to your 20s which for me stands out for you as quite a sort of turbulent period in your life where you struggled with eating issues and you described them as your wilderness years mm-hmm. when do you think your issues around food first started because i think you've spoken about finding quite a lot of comfort and solace in cooking as a very young child mm-hmm. and then cooking in your teens to make money but when did it start to become problematic and a sort of body image issues start to kick in?
0: Well I came from a family of models and yeah I think my mother definitely had kind of eating issues and you know preferred just not to eat which obviously was not a good thing for me because I loved eating so that was definitely not anorexia was never going to be the disease that I chose. So I was, you know, naturally really skinny. We all are, but I get quite accused still on social media of not eating. I'm like, dude, do you have any idea how much food I eat? It's not my fault that my genes are like this. But yeah, so we're all naturally pretty skinny. And then, you know, I'm very like my father. I think we just have, we're always running around, burning off kind of restless energy. But uh, I essentially won a modelling competition when I was 14, but I was so young and I was at a very academic day school. And the prize was to kind of go off to the Bahamas and do this shoot. And basically, my parents were nervous about me missing school. And so they pretended that I hadn't won. But I got really excited about this. And I think because our upbringing felt quite dark and, you know, worried, my parents were were worried often. So it it was an anxious upbringing. I think that modelling competition felt to me like this escape. And then when they basically said I couldn't win it and and I had to go back to school and get back to my normal life, I felt, I remember feeling kind of the shutters going down or like the the prison gates closing again. And probably at the same stage, I stopped growing because I was, you know, at 14, I was five foot 11. So basically did all my growing. And that's when I started putting on a bit of weight because I was used to coming home and eating four pieces of bread and it not touching the sides just for tea before supper. And then suddenly it did. I think I went on a, French holiday, put, you know, maybe a couple of kilos on and, you know, my entire family being aghast, (laughs) I put on a bit of weight because I'd always been this ridiculously skinny creature. And so I think the combination of being anxious anyway, and having inherited, you know, I I only took lithium for 10 years. So I was prescribed lithium for bipolar. I'm not sure how severe my bipolar was looking back because I feel like I got off relatively lightly. But I think this idea that my parents, my father's not great at making money, but we came from a fairly ritzy family who had lots of money. And I think this idea that I could save my family through earning money through modelling was kind of somewhere ingrained in my head. And then, you know, like anyone will know with any of these kind of disorders, it's not just that idea of you know, losing weight or being this kind of perfect body image, there's all the background to it. So I think anorexia is famously about control. And bulimia is a way of letting off steam, you know, there's all sorts of things at play. So these things are never black and white. But definitely from about 15, for 12 or for 13 years, I really, every time I thought about food, it was kind of negative. And I thought about food all the time. I mean, I literally thought about food the entire time. So my entire kind of mid-teens to kind of mid-twenties were preoccupied by feeling shitty about
1: myself and shitty about the food I was eating. So it wasn't fun. <laughs> what did it look like behaviorally? Did you start restricting your food? So when you came back from France, did you suddenly think, oh my God, okay, right, the control comes in and, and were certain foods then? No, 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 I never restricted. Card. So I was a classic kind of binger, classic binger. It was really interesting. So
0: I, my twin brother, about the same time I was diagnosed with bipolar, my twin brother was diagnosed with schizophrenia almost, you know, within kind of months of each other. But I look at our different trajectories and look at how the fact that I am naturally extrovert and always talking about everything. You know, you can't shut me up normally. So once I discovered there was something actually wrong and that there was a reason why I felt shitty the the whole time because I thought it was just it was just the way I was I didn't think there was a different way of feeling it was just my life experience and then I remember just seeing this article when I was at university and it was a kind of tick-brock exercise and I was like oh maybe I've got depression you know maybe there's actually something there's a word that describes this it was was kind of amazing because it meant this wasn't how life actually was there could be a better life um around so that was kind of a turning point to be able to go out and seek help And I really fought to seek help. And I saw, you know, the first therapist I saw, I didn't trust her, I didn't rate her, didn't talk to her. The second one was kind of okay. The third one was amazing. And I think, you know, developing a trust, you have to develop trust with your therapist to be able to really come clean with what's really on your chest and be honest about your feelings, you know, then became the process of healing and realising that eating disorder and the patterns of eating were just a way of dealing with anxiety, and if you could tackle the underlying anxiety and feelings of self worth and all that stuff, then you, you could tackle the rest and That was really liberating knowing that you could actually solve these things and do something about it i I got help on the NHS I saw this amazing guy for a year and a half, and you know it completely changed my life and when I think that these days it's almost impossible. To get help, and their long, long waiting lists. It makes me feel one fairly desperate for young people or all people who need help. But two, it just seems so unenlightened. I mean, I, you know, went on to start Wahaka, where you know we've employed thousands and thousands of people over the past fifteen years um, who've all paid taxes and contributed to the economy. Um, imagine if I'd never had any help and kind of stayed fettered by my anxieties and and mental health issues and never managed to get a grip with them all then you know I I might be on the dole still not contributing to the economies of society because I think there are many ways you can contribute to society which go underrated and undervalued.
1: It's an incredibly valid point because so many of the highest achievers in this life have suffered from mental health issues and this is why I think it's so pertinent that it's actually spoken about
0: and, and then you look at the cost of um you know the the prevalence of mental health in prisons amongst homelessness the costs of of keeping all those people in prison and of trying to um sweep up people who are living without homes those costs are huge to society imagine if you could just put some of the money up front and invest in people and that's also why i set up a charity called chefs and schools and which i'm a trustee of with Henry Dimbleby and Nicole Pisani, because again, you've got to invest in people. <laughs> if you can't um, churn out healthy, happy people, how can you expect them to be productive and, and contributing to society? It feels that kind of crazy thing where you have to put in to get out. And if you can't be bothered to put in, then you're amazed that there's kind of high knife crime and high homelessness and high um, rates in prison and you know ni- you know gangs going around you know it just it's so logical I, and I find it so unjoined up.
1: We were actually having this exact conversation with Rose Ferguson, who was on the podcast a few weeks ago, and and she was saying the exact same thing. It's absolutely astonishing how in hospitals, schools, and prisons, diet is not a priority because we know that diet is basically a bottom line for good mental health good diet equates with well definitely contributes towards good mental health in a significant way and yet in all these institutions it's just appalling the level of of care that's put into it
0: well i think that's what's so exciting about science and what we're beginning to learn about the gut biome and how it's linked to the brain because um, I mean, I was quite vocal when the government brought out the calorie counting on menus because what the single biggest drop we've seen in diets is the lack of fibre in our diets as people have moved over to ultra-processed food and stopped eating so many just cooked vegetables and fruit cooked from scratch. And and this link between fibre and a healthy gut and between strong and positive mental health and that link, people are really beginning to see those absolute patterns and links that are very, very clear. So if you don't have enough fibre in your diet, if you eat a poor diet, not only will you be physically unhealthy, but you will be mentally unhealthy. And the government are so slow to catch on to this because, as you say, you know, you go into hospital now and you get sicker while you're in hospital. You get physically sicker. No one actually you know, calculates, I think, how mentally <laughs> sicker you get. And you know, it's all linked to climate too because if you can put better food into schools, prisons, hospitals, I'm actually on a massive campaign about this at the moment. In Denmark, they did this extraordinary bit of legislation about a decade ago where they regulated that 30% of publicly procured food would have to be organic and they set a framework for it to succeed which included better training of cooks, clearer labelling of food and it's had the most extraordinary impact not only on the public health bill which has shrunk massively. Denmark's got much clearer waterways now and that's not even considering the effect on healthier soils. So this is a real thing I'm championing and I'm really going to be championing next year is trying to move the government on this, on on trying to initially start to say, let's put 30% of public procured foods as regeneratively grown, because that way we can mitigate floods, we can mitigate drought, um, we can sink more carbon into the soil, we can let nature back in and we can feed the nation better food. We spend £2 billion a year on procuring food through hospitals, prisons, social care. Imagine if we could use that in a positive way rather than the almost wholly negative way it's being used at the moment.
1: hurt to healing has partnered with Brown Advisory to bring you this podcast. Brown Advisory, a global investment management firm, is passionate about raising awareness of mental health challenges in order to help people thrive in an ever-changing world. A big thank you to Brown Advisory for supporting my mission. The calories on the menus is quite an interesting discussion I'd like to ask your views on because for someone, i.e. myself, with an eating disorder, I now go to a restaurant and I'm like, right, well, my favorite dish has nearly a thousand calories in it. And I'm at the point, as you've sort of alluded to yourself, where I'm actually a real lover of food and I'm past that point of being very triggered by seeing how many calories are in something. But of course, it's not really the nicest thing when you're ordering a delicious dish and you're suddenly thinking, oh shit, should I actually be ordering that or should I go for the salad, which has got 300 less calories in it? What do you think about it? I mean, do you find it triggering yourself? Do you care about calories anymore? And what do you think the government should do going forward? I
0: think the calorie legislation was done for positive reasons, but I think it is such a crude tool. I mean, we all have different gut biomes. We all have different metabolisms. We process food, all of us, in different ways. I mean, I know that I process food differently. If I've gone for a swim and run around more in a week, or I've bicycled to work, you know, and I've gone for a run. I'll process food way quicker than if I've had a particular week where I've been traveling a lot, going on long train journeys, and haven't had much time to move around. I mean, as human beings, we have evolved to move, and I think our sedentary kind of lifestyles really don't help our mental or physical health. And I definitely am way happier when I'm active, and I know that I process food better when I'm active. So it feels to me like the calories are entirely irrelevant because what they don't tell you is if the food that you're eating has been sprayed with herbicides pesticides and fungicides some of which have got real links to cancer alzheimer's um you know really nasty chemicals are being sprayed on the foods that we eat they don't tell you about how much fiber is in the food they don't tell you effectively if it's a good calorie or bad calorie because we need calories to exist like without any calories you run out of energy and you die you, you definitely can't go for a run or go running around and being like a kind of i feel like as human beings, we all should be on tiger mode where we're feeling lean and mean. And, you know, imagine you being in the jungle and pouncing around and feeling alive and fit and well. That's how, as human beings, we exist in the most happiest state when we're feeling well and wanting to leap through life. And so I don't think a calorie can help you there. I think what helps you is moving a lot eating kind of a nice amount of fiber having your rainbow plate of vegetables and, and eating as many vegetables from scratch you know that is what a healthy diet is and also having a kind of positive attitude to food because again the calorie counting on this you know tedious tedious way that the press look at food and diet which is kind of rubbish you kind of want to throw all that in the bin and just think about you know how does food make me feel do grains make me feel good Do vegetables make me feel good because We know when we feel good after food, if we're connected to it. And you talked about the joys of preparing food. I think so many people are triggered by food in a negative way that they try and get as far away from the process of cooking as possible. Now, my journey of healing from my food disorder was getting as close to the preparing as possible because I started to learn that the more pleasure I took and had in the preparing of the food the more the hunger that wasn't actual hunger, it was a kind of mental hunger was being fed because it was a very meditative thing cooking. It's a creative, wonderful kind of, you know, you're in the moment, you're using your hands, you're being physical. You've got lovely experiences of smell and taste and texture. So it's a very satisfying pastime, unless you're terrified by it, like I am probably with singing or painting. So not everyone's going to have as much pleasure as I am, but I think, just living on food that's prepared in boxes that has no fiber in it and is high in saturated fats and salts and sugars not only is going to be physically bad for you but again it removes you from that whole process so there's nothing in the run-up there's none of the pleasure you get and particularly the way we tend to eat on the run eat you know by ourselves eat out of the fridge you know none of that gives you the pleasure that is inherent in preparing food and then sitting down and sharing it with other people. You know, I keep getting these advertisements for the metaverse and I think how is the metaverse going to add to life when inherently as human beings, the most pleasure we get is from being physically in a room together. That really is one of the key things that make us happy.
1: There's nothing like, having supper round a table with a group of people it's incredibly bonding and again it fosters that human connectedness which as you know Johan Hari says it's like connectedness is the opposite of addiction. Yeah. That's the really devastating thing about any addictive behaviors is that they cause us to withdraw and to isolate and especially with an eating disorder the level of shame that's attached to people seeing you eat. So I think for someone with an eating disorder the temptation is to not eat in front of people. And I think part of a crucial part of my recovery has actually been about sharing food with people and realizing that it's okay to be you know a bit funny about what you will and you won't eat, but actually it's being public about it and it's showing up almost which is is the main part,
0: yeah, and actually they did studies, so B Wilson wrote this in one of her incredible books. I think it's How We Eat Now, where they did studies on Japanese communities living in the states and they had similar diets, but one group had adopted the pattern of eating in America. So snacking through the day, eating on the hoof, not sitting down, kind of eating quite often by yourself or at your desk. And then the other group of Japanese had stayed with their patterns of eating. So having a lunch hour, sitting down with the family, taking time to eat food, and they showed healthier physical outcomes just by the virtue of sitting down and talking and sharing food. And and I think that's so fascinating and and so overlooked. I mean, you know, this government doesn't even think it's important to feed kids any food, let alone good food. So, you know, you kind of think, how can we change this around where the powers that be begin to realise that
1: good food is not a luxury, it's a total necessity. Absolutely. And this concept that um, a lot of therapists, funnily enough, eating disorders seem to adopt... Which is like, you know, you've got to just lose the obsession with food. You know, you've just got to kind of start seeing food as fuel and find other passions and other interests. Because, like you, I found so much recovery through connecting with the food, through learning to love it and appreciate it and to cook you know stuff that's grown in the garden and to source ingredients and to see it as a creative process as well as you do it's an art form I mean you just can't deny it when you put a beautiful meal together and you display it on the table and people go wow it's a real sense of achievement and satisfaction I mean the pleasure is endless but then the other the other thing that I think is so
0: undervalued is that when you start eating more healthily you are so much more connected to your feelings of being satisfied, of feeling no longer feeling hungry. So the moment you start cooking more and cooking with more whole ingredients that aren't, you know, full of heavily processed ingredients and stabilisers and emulsifiers, which distort the microbiome and distort all your receptors... If you're more connected and have less of that junk food that's actually killing people now more than smoking or alcohol in this country, then you naturally begin to listen to your body. And when you when you stop being hungry, you, you stop eating. You know, it's that amazing thing. You're like, well, I don't actually want any more. By embracing food more,
1: you get much more connected. And as you say, that is the opposite of addiction. But I'm curious, what did... So the third therapist that you said you saw, what was it that they... Did and why did they manage to get to that level of anxiety that was behind the eating and was driving the binge eating?
0: Well, i th- I think it was CBD. We did CBT,
1: CBT, CBT not CBD, CBD, CBD rather than cannabis. CBD. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying
0: to get my mom the CBD for her anxiety. I think it would be good for her. No, so you know, it's just about talking about those kind of hang ups that you inherit as a child. You know, the critical voice, which. Again, referring back to Helena Bonham Carter's interview, she calls the shitty committee, which I really like. To some extent, we've all got a critical voice and it's really learning to rationalise it and rationalise kind of feelings, you know, because I think as children, we grow up and it's really easy to think that things are your fault, to feel the blame for things that cannot possibly be your fault. And so, you know, even with the happiest upbringings, I'm sure people inherit you know, various levels of guilt for different things that have happened in their families. And I guess it's just kind of unpicking that. And, you know, obviously my childhood was probably more traumatic than some with schizophrenic twin brother, grandmother who killed herself, you know, mother who really battled with depression throughout my childhood. So it wasn't a happy-go-lucky, carefree childhood. And I think coming to terms with that and just seeing it as it was, and not feeling that I was to blame for all of it but then more particularly not feeling to blame for the fact you know that I effectively felt that I'd thrown away 15 to 25 this critical part of my youth experience and just thrown it in the bin and you know that's the the kind of wilderness years I also felt like they were the wasted years of just how could you have just completely torn up and, and wasted that that time when you're supposed to be so happy of course now you look back, you think, well, so many people feel miserable in that because it's the, those formative years where you're trying to learn who you are as a person. So they're not actually easy at all for anyone, probably. But mine were particularly n- not happy. And I think coming to terms with that, just accepting it and and actually realizing the value that it gives you, you know, being a bit more aware of people's feelings, a bit more aware that life is not just one carefree ride, you know I've got this really strong sense of social justice, which probably I wouldn't have had if I'd had the most wonderful carefree existence i mean maybe I would have maybe that's on people who do have carefree existences, but you know i I definitely once I start working on food well, on a you know was a real mission you know I'm constantly dreaming up campaigns to try and make the world better, whether it's you know, reducing plastic and food packaging or, you know, we did this huge thing called The Pig Idea, which is about trying to legislate again to be able to food food waste to livestock. I'm endlessly dreaming up things to try and fix things for the better. And I really credit a decade of being miserable (laughs) to some of that. You know, you can really accept your past, accept who you are with all of it and give yourself a warmer hug and think, well, that's what made me as a person. So, you know, you can't
1: regret all of that what would you say was a turning point? I mean, when did you finally say goodbye to that eating disorder and become... Totally okay with food. Was that after going to Bali Malu? Was that before that?
0: No, it was definitely after. In fact, I I remember halfway through Bali I had to phone up my parents to bring me out a bigger pair of jeans because I was surrounded by all this amazing kind of freshly baked sourdough every day and the endless puddings we make every day, and I just got steadily bigger and bigger and bigger. <laughs> so my parents had to halfway through just come out with a bigger pair of jeans for me. But I think it was realizing the patterns and realizing realizing it was addictive. So just like any kind of feeling of release, realizing that the whole cycle of it was quite addictive. And so just one episode of binging wasn't ever just one episode, it could trigger a whole kind of pattern. And so, you know, the way to curing yourself was to just think, well, no, I just don't need to do this and giving yourself a break. So you had three donuts. I mean, what's going to happen? Is that is that a disaster? And not feeling that it then would trigger another three donuts the next day and then another four donuts a day after that. You could just say, right, well, I have three donuts today and that's fine. No one's died over it. And I'll just get on and maybe have a bowl of porridge for the morning tomorrow, you know, and, and realizing that it's just not a disaster. And I love, you know, whenever I'm listening to really great podcasts, that sense of like every day being a fresh slate. And, and I love that because it's such an empowering way to feel about life. Um, and so, yeah, I think it was gradual, but it was really the more I kind of accepted who I was and the more I was kind of honest about my feelings and and gave myself more of a break, you know, really learned that I was not a bad person. I was not damaged goods. I was actually OK. And I think so much of mental health therapy is about accepting who you are. And that's really where you start your kind of real road to recovery is
1: just kind of accepting yourself and actually liking yourself a bit. Do you think recovery from an eating disorder often comes with age and maturity and perspective?
0: I think recovering from any disorder comes with self-acceptance. You know, you could be talking about alcoholism, gambling. These are all triggers that come from, you know, pushing feelings down and trying to bury feelings and the moment you start getting to a stage where you can allow uncomfortable feelings to come up and address them, that is when you can start to really mend yourself on whatever way your anxiety kind of manifests itself. So I think therapy is absolutely crucial for that. I think, what I mean, I've, some people probably do self-therapize, but um, I think it is just a question of allowing uncomfortable feelings and having some type of self-awareness and self-acceptance, that is the key to it. And I think... I've no idea what age, but I feel like, you know, some people are way more mature and could probably get to that earlier. Equally, there are properly grown up adults who are still battling with their demons because they've never, ever kind of really addressed them head on. So I think it's more about that than actual age.
1: Finally, how has being a mum affected your mental health as we sort of, you know, circling back to the first question? Do you feel able to give your daughters as balanced as an upbringing as you think you're capable of and and do you see them thriving in the world or do you sort of freak out when you see them being a bit weird about food or developing anxieties about certain things how's that played out so far touch wood they all show really healthy appetite
0: for food which is great because I think actually, you know, weirdly, I have one of the healthiest attitudes to food now because I just love it so much. And I cook generally quite healthy stuff, but we also eat quite a lot of crap as well. You know, we have quite a nice balance of healthy and and rubbish probably at, at home. I think it's really tough running a business and being a mother. The pressures that come with juggling, trying to juggle a, you know, thriving career and trying to nurture your children at home are almost pulling in opposite directions. Not to say that I don't think it's really good for your mental health as a woman to have both because one is a respite from the other. So, you know, coming home to cuddly, cosy children is lovely after kind of intense day at work and also going off to work and escaping your children is also really delightful sometimes. But I, you know, my work life having had kind of a wasted decade is how I saw it definitely at the beginning of my career I was on a mission and you know I didn't start cooking professionally till I was you know I went to Ballymoo when I was about 25 or 26 so I felt I'd wasted a lot of time when I could have been in kitchens um, learning so I was definitely very driven and really really working quite hard and I think that did take its toll on my kids and I think you know I recently have spent two years in therapy, just talking about coming to terms with that, about feeling, can I be more present with my, definitely my eldest and possibly my middle child a bit more. But by the time I had my youngest, I was more around, more kind of mentally around as well, more aware of how my feelings and happiness affected their feelings and happiness. Um, so I think, you know, again, therapy is such a powerful thing because it's such an enabler. Um, to look at patterns and to try and address things. So I have found, you know, going back to therapy 15 years after first going to therapy was an immensely rich and rewarding process. And I feel I'm a much better mother for it. And I hope that my children are benefiting from that.
1: Well, Thomasina, you're such an inspiration for so many people and you continue to do great work and it's just phenomenal. You're boundless energy just oh wow it's infectious thank you for everything you do and thank you for joining us today
0: thank you so much for having me it's been a real pleasure very good to talk about this
1: thank you for listening to this episode of the hurt to healing podcast i'd love for you to subscribe to the show or to follow me on our hurt to healing instagram at hurt to healing pod You might also have a friend or family member that you think might benefit from hearing this conversation. So please spread the word.